Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks that Sunday's top of the league clash would have been a bit more interesting if the managers had been keener to win the game than scared to lose it. My name is Rupert Meadows and I'm written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Giffy Sports. My co-host Karen McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. Um, and an interesting take there on the uh, the top of the table clash uh, between Arsenal and Man City. I think it's definitely a uh, depending on who you ask. I've heard some people I had a conversation today where someone was using the uh, what is rapidly becoming a bit of a cliche. The sort of oh, it was a game of chess with players moving here and there, and others going, ah, you know, it wasn't the most exciting game as a neutral, uh, which I think can both be true at the same time. Um, we will be kicking off our Premier League discussion with a pair of 1-0 game, despite the fact we did have a number of high-scoring games this week. Um, but before we get into all of those games, a little bit more hosting news. It seems to be that time of year. Um, and the exciting news, at least for us uh, here in the UK, uh, that the UK and Republic of Ireland is set to host Euro 2028, uh, with Turkey and Italy to host Euro 2032. Um, and the reason this is exciting uh, for everyone in the UK, and I say the UK and not just England, which of course Rupert and I are fans of, is that the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland and Wales have never actually hosted a major football tournament. So it's an historic uh, moment for those nations. It's huge. It's, it sort of comes back to um, what you mentioned last week about this new uh, ability for nations that maybe didn't have the capacity to host major tournaments on their own before being brought into the fold. Uh, and will hopefully do great things um not for football in all of those countries, because everyone on this <laughs> pair of islands is absolutely mental about football. Um, but it will do a lot, hopefully, you know, for the infrastructure, for the economies. So, you know, really good to see. And then Turkey and Italy being the other one. Um, a really interesting one there. Another sort of, well, would you call this cross-continental? Turkey has that sort of half Asia, half Europe thing where you cross over the bridge. So maybe, um, and maybe Turkey could be that even if they hosted it on their own. Um but yeah, I think, I think it really depends on which, uh, which not, not franchise, what's the name, uh, you know, which federation they're a part of. And I think they're part of Europe. Well, they're, well, they're a part of the... They, they are a part of Europe. Although what I would say is that um, there are a lot of countries... I mean, you know, we were talking about just the other week, the Asian Football Federation, the Asian Football Confederation, rather, having a bid from Australia, who are decidedly not in Asia. <laughs> but uh, No, but they are in the federation. They are, but the point I'm making is that the being in a federation is not necessarily indicative of where you are geographically speaking. Um, well, that's certainly true. Turkey sort of hovers over both. Anyway, that's all besides the point. Um, yeah, two really interesting tournaments uh, here that have just been recently announced. Uh, one interesting thing here is that unlike with the sort of sextuple host that we talked about uh, last week for the World Cup in 2030, um, this uh, 2028, which will also have uh, five different uh, host countries, will not see all of them qualify. Um, it's not yet sure how exactly it's going to shake out. It might be that just two automatically qualify. There might be some sort of change up to the rules. Um, but already England have come out and said that they want to play qualifiers to get ready for the tournament, uh, which is... You know, I saw that and was like, great, good to see them getting into it. I feel like my mood might change if they manage to bungle the qualifiers, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that would uh, <laughs> that would be a tough one to take. Um, if if I'm putting on my optimist hat, I would say that um, you know maybe part of it is that England want uh, like another um, couple of the nations hosting to get automatic qualification, such as perhaps Northern Ireland. Um, but that is that is an optimistic standpoint. I don't know. I, I could see there being something in that. To be fair, um, we are the the country that probably needs that automatic qualification the least of um of the five nations and yeah it is obviously a five nation bid but there is also the kind of the finagling of the fact that it is the uk and ireland um so yeah it's it's cool i'm ex incredibly excited i'm pretty surprised to be honest with you that we managed to get um the the bid because obviously we uh didn't exactly cover ourselves in glory last time we were hosting any sort of uh, large-scale football tournament on our shores um but hey a good thing's a good thing yeah well i think it's all just down to how it's all shaken out with the world cup and the other euros turkey with the other sort of main bidders for this one and then withdrew so that they could bid for the next one in in tandem with italy so england sort of effectively won it unopposed um so 
that'll be the reason why, I suppose, rather. I'm sure there would have been um, many reasonable arguments against uh, the UK, <laughs> certainly England, hosting uh, another massive tournament after our behaviour at Euro 2020. Um, but hey, that's all in the past now, and we can look ahead to the future. Quite an exciting um, range of stadia being used as well for this tournament. There's 10 different stadia that'll be used uh, for the tournament. From Wembley Stadium in London, obviously, to the Principality Stadium in Cardiff, uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the Etihad Stadium, the Everton Stadium, uh, which is, will be the new one built down on uh, Bramley Moor Dock, St. James's Park, Villa Park, Hampton Park up in Glasgow, Aviva Stadium in Dublin, and Casement Park in Belfast. So a real range of places across the country, uh, both in terms of obviously each one of the host nations having at least one stadium, uh, but also, you know, we've got some stadiums mm-hmm. in the north there, we've got some stadiums in the Midlands, and we've got a couple of stadiums uh, down in London as well. So uh, a nice range um, for anyone certainly attending who will, uh, this is probably one of those tournaments where instead of logistics being a complete nightmare, it'll be, uh, if you're visiting the UK for the first time, a nice chance to, the UK and Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland, I should say, a nice chance to, to visit a number of places. Um, although I say that um, with the way our trains work maybe not maybe it will be a nightmare who's to say um, problem for close to the time perhaps but uh, but yeah I'm interested to hear what you think about um, you know just the fact that we're going to be hosting it all together as one big happy family when definitely in sporting terms we're not always necessarily one big happy family there is of course precedent with things like rugby but historically Scotland and England haven't always gotten on particularly well England and Wales Probably, you could also argue, haven't always gotten on England and everyone well. haven't gone very well. England and most other countries near them, uh, historically, haven't always gone <laughs> or, or, very or well. Or indeed far away from them. <laughs> England and other countries of the world um, have not always gone on very well. Um, but I think it's it's obviously similar to perhaps a, an Iberian rivalry between Portugal and Spain. But then, um, you know, the, the other part of that is that I don't think their rivalry is, is massively fierce. And also, you know, I don't think there's a massive rivalry between Spain and Morocco, at least as far as I'm aware. Well, I was in, it's very anecdotal, but I was in Portugal, like, not too long ago, and there was definitely a bit of a rivalry uh, on sort of sporting sides, and also, not in like, uh, you know, war way, <laughs> but more of a sort of like, ah, those Spanish uh, exhibited by, uh, you know, people didn't like it there if you spoke Spanish to them, which they no one really appreciates if you speak the wrong language to them from any country. But uh, yeah, there seemed to be a bit of a don't, you know, assume we're the same as the Spanish type of thing, um, in much the same way that I think you know, the Scottish definitely have with the English. So so, so I think there's, or the Welsh have with the English, for example. Um, the Irish have it as well, but fortunately they don't seem to get grouped in as much. I think the Irish sort of accent seems to be, so I'm thinking of like Americans, they seem to sort of recognise that because half of them <laughs> the Irish themselves with big air quotes. Uh, anyway, enough about big uh, sort of semi-politics there and getting myself into hot water. Um, to what you, to your point there about sort of the five nations sort of acting together as one big happy family, I, I, again, I think this is sort of what we talked about last week. This is sort of like the, the good ending of the co-hosting. It, from a logistical standpoint, makes a lot of sense. Um, Travelling around to all of them is not that complicated. Um, once you're in the English land mass, it's certainly a lot less complicated than traveling from, for example, the US to Mexico and, and back. Or, or South America to Northern Africa. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so so I would sort of file this under, although I think we do probably have a less uh, less harmonious relationship than the Benelux countries. Uh, this is sort of in that wheelhouse, which is sort of, you and, you it and makes Benelux. a lot of sense. You're really, uh, you're really going for that, aren't you? I <laughs> really like that. I'm to keep talking about it till it happens. But yeah, very, very exciting. Um, and Turkey and Italy as well. I think that's uh, another, that one's quite different. Um, and there'll probably be a lot of logistical issues there. But there's something about, uh, you sort of get, if, if you go out for the Turkey and Italy Euros, you can get sort of packed two summers into one, two very different locations. <laughs> that's very true. Um, yeah, it's cool. There's something interesting about Italy and Turkey. I mean, they're not two countries that you necessarily put together because I feel like, there's always that middleman Greece that seems to be more connected to both of them, I would say. Um, so it is a, is a curious combo bid. And yeah, I, I could see some some pretty cool things coming out of that. I wonder where they'd play them. It'd be cool if it was, it was like a Mediterranean um, Euros, you know. I think that would be, that'd be pretty cool. I'd like that. 
Yeah, yeah, that'd be very cool. Um, the only thing I sort of want to end on there is just that point about Stadia. Um, obviously, there are two uh, stadiums there, uh, Everton's Bramley Moor Dock uh, and Casement Park that are as yet not built. Um, so, well, one one is sort of being redeveloped, the, the Casement Park, and, and one is being built and is expected to be finished in late 2024. Um, so interesting to, you know, hopefully they're, <laughs> they're meant to be finished well before time, but we know how these things work in Britain. Um also just interesting to note that there's quite a few sort of notable stadiums left off that list uh, and I do think it's uh, hopefully a bit of a wake-up call to some of the uh, sort of old powerful like you know the three ostensibly biggest clubs in this country are not going to have their stadiums host a a, a game in this tournament um, and I think because they're all in sort of various states of disrepair really in the Emirates Old Trafford and Anfield um, so an interesting decision to not host them there largely because they are amongst the highest capacity grounds and also you would think a draw in and of themselves for football fans so the the proposition for the other stadiums must have been really strong and these ones quite weak to leave all three of those out well it could be that could also be i don't know some sort of some sort of like um political game being played uh amongst top clubs in football and um their 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 associations um that govern them i don't know I suppose, I mean, like, for, for Arsenal's, and it's, you know, the Emirates isn't even an old historic ground in, in the same way that the others are, um, but, uh, you know, you've already got Wembley Stadium and Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, you've already got Everton sort of brand spanking new stadium to be, to be hosting, um, which will hopefully be brand spanking new, uh, and then the Etihad Stadium again, like, brand spanking new uh, in Manchester, so I, it does make sense, it's just funny to think of you know, in isolation, when you think about it for two seconds, it makes perfect sense. But it's funny to think in isolation of you're showing off the football highlights of the UK and none of the three most successful teams in the country's history stadiums are featuring. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, is an interesting one. But then, you know, it's hard not to wonder things like the, the Etihad being picked, but the Emirates not being picked. That's kind of, I don't know, potentially interesting. Um, but either way, We've got so many good stadia across those five countries that we should be absolutely fine. And yeah, people are yeah, absolutely. Miss out. I, I don't. No, no, exactly. And I, I don't think it's a. I think it's a. It's a good selection. I think the selection is not any the less rich for uh, missing those out. But perhaps I, I approach that from the perspective of someone who, <laughs> you know, lives in this country, so has the, the benefit of, of you know, being able to go to them whenever I want. Uh, whereas. Some might go, ah, I'm coming all the way to... I mean, like, just off the top of my head, I can think of loads of fans who would travel to England for a tournament just to go and see Old Trafford. But then, if it's not up to scratch, it's not up to scratch. Well, hey, I mean, one thing that could be interesting is um, if you've got loads and loads of fans travelling to the UK to watch um, the tournament, you could have, for example, if a game is being showed at the Etihad, all of the spillover fans that couldn't get tickets could go to um, Old Trafford and watch the game on a massive TV. That'd be cool. That is, that would be cool, and that is exactly what they should do. Uh, but I think they probably won't. There's probably some good logistical reasons, but also some much more significant and less good, just <laughs> like bureaucracy reasons why that won't happen. <laughs> you fill the stadium with a nation's fans. Each each stadium gets one half. You got to play. <laughs> You play the first half of the Etihad with the, with with one set of fans, second half of Old Trafford with the other set of fans. That's that's surely I like, it. I like it. No problems seen there. Um, no, no, let's no. move into a bit of Premier League football, though. Unless you had a final word on hosting. No, I think um, there'll obviously be stuff more coming out about it as we get closer to it. I'm excited. It's cool. I hope we don't mess it up. Um, to be honest with you, because uh, I wasn't. I didn't have my proud hat on after 2020. Um, so fingers crossed we we can do a little better fingers crossed indeed well uh you know it all starts at home so let's neither you nor i get too drunk and belligerent when uh when the world comes here for football um let's let's move into uh the first premier league game we're going to be discussing this week a one nil uh and it won't surprise you to learn that that was arsenal one nil manchester city uh a game that uh as you sort of mentioned at the beginning there perhaps not interesting for the neutral i'm sure exciting for all of the fans in the stadium and uh that friend i spoke to earlier who's a bit of a bit of a tactico and talked about it being a bit of a chess match um so you know some people great, others not, but um, certainly an impactful game uh, in the context of the league this season, certainly, uh, in that Arsenal now go above Manchester City in the league um, and are 
second only on goal, di- or not even goal difference, on goals scored uh, behind Tottenham. But also in the wider context of Arsenal as a team, <clears throat> they have not beaten Manchester City in 12, t- 12 times of asking. In fact, they've not just not beaten them, they've lost 12 league games in a row. Um, and this has sort of finally broken that duck in the 13th time of asking. Um, do you think, Rupert, given the context of this game and with City having players like Rodri out and Kevin De Bruyne out and John Stone sort of uh, not being able to start this game, that this is a real turning point for Arsenal? Or do you think that they just caught City at the right time and managed to capitalise? I think it's it can it be both. I think it can be both. Um, mm. You know, I think obviously City had a couple of their most important players. I would say their two most important players um, out. And so it was obviously a really good time to to try and win. But then also Arsenal had Saka and, and Timber on the bench, not on the bench, sorry, um, uh, injured as well. So I feel like it wasn't the perfect timing for Arsenal either. If it was full, mm. full strength Arsenal versus much weaker City, then maybe I would agree with you stronger. But I feel like regardless of... of what happens before the game starts um, after it with Arsenal taking three points it, it's got to be seen as a shifting of the tide 12 games in a row they lost that's massive and significant and not not just a, a pattern but that's that's surely a psychological thing as well um, you know I, I know um, talking to Arsenal fans before the game uh, not all of them were, were necessarily entirely confident at all that they would get something from this game and that's at home and with um, City players um, in, injured now. So uh, I think I think it's great for Arsenal. I think they've done really well to win it. I, I think it probably deserved to be a draw. Um, just on the balance of play, it was a bit of a chess match. But um, I personally found um, the subs to be particularly egregious on both sides. Um, you know, things like bringing on John Stones for Rico Lewis just did not spark a massive amount of joy for me, or indeed bringing on someone like Thomas Partey for Jorginho. I think at least five of these six subs um, that the 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 team, um, the managers made after the 60th minute were defensively minded subs. And that's, to me, as a neutral, quite boring. Um, but yeah, Although I, massively you, important. You do say that. You do say that the subs were defensive, and in terms of positional play, that is certainly true. It is key to note that in Arsenal's goal, all four of the players who have been subbed on had an involvement in it. Thomas Partey played the ball wide um, up to Takahiro Tomiyasu, who then played it to Kai Havertz, who then pulled it back to Martinelli. So all four subs had direct... It would literally went from one sub to another. So, you know, there's a case to be made there. And Arteta talked about afterwards how he brought on Takahiro Tomiyasu specifically to counter Jeremy Doku, that that is the sort of chess element that some people have been talking about. Sure, Not so much sure. bringing on subs just to reduce the, the chance of a loss, but actually those four subs, whether that was the intention or not, directly contributed to the win. Absolutely. And I think Martinelli, I took out of that, I said kind of the subs after 60th minute, um, fully agree that that is an attacking minded sub. And obviously you're right that Kai Havertz got the assist. I think it's more just that when you actually watched the game, both teams were playing extremely cat and mouse, extremely timid, neither one willing to even try to seize the game by the scruff of the neck. It did come down to a chess match um, and it did come down to decisions made. You're right, I actually probably didn't give enough credit to those subs when you put it like that. But I, I do feel like the eye test was very much that um, both teams were pretty pretty scaredy cat. Would you say that in a game like that, because I, I I agree both teams were maybe focusing more on defence than, than attack. Would you say that in that instance, that's an example of the teams not trying to win it or the two teams in full cognizance of the fact that, you know, I think they were the, certainly City were the highest scoring team in the league last season and Arsenal were probably the second highest scoring team in the league. I'm not sure who else would have been. Um, that they both sort of recognise, okay, there's some firepower here, we've really got to shut that off. I mean, you know, it's hardly a hot take that City are really, really dangerous going forwards and have probably the most lethal goal scorer in the world right now. And he was reduced to having zero shots on target, zero shots, 0.00 XG. City as a whole had the fewest amount of shots They've, I think they've had under Guardiola. They just had four shots all game. Um, and despite David Raya's attempts to uh, potentially give them a goal, uh, they didn't manage to score. So 
on the one hand, I think you could say, well, you know, it's a bit scaredy cat. But, you know, if you're uh, any one of those defenders, really, maybe less so on the on the City side because they ended up not winning it. But for large portions of the game, they defended excellently. I think uh, William Saliba and Gabrielle would have a word with you that it was a boring game. They'd say it was a high octane <laughs> and exhilarating from minute one. Well, I think, um, you know, as as an opener for the episode, it's probably a little bit flippant to, to say something like that. However, um, I do think that Arsenal's goal was incredibly lucky. It's hard, you know, you can't deny that because it was a deflection and was going straight into the arms oh, of yeah. the keeper. Um, and it could easily have, have been a nil-nil draw. What I would say, though, is I think that Mikel Arteta definitely won the tactical battle. Um, you know, I think it massively benefited Arsenal to be playing the way that they were, to be to be closing off um, and defending really resolutely and stopping um, players like um, Erling Haaland. You know, I, I think Arsenal played the game very well and I think tactically they set themselves up very well and clearly responded well, as you said there, to, um, you know, what Man City were trying to change um, and, and mix up. But um, I think it's just more a sense that it didn't quite live up to the the billing as as games often do, and it's not their fault for having a, a big shadow. But um, personally, I was I was quite excited for a real clash, a real like you know trading of blows. And credit to Arsenal, they they probably did um, reduce those blows to a little bit more of a whimper. But um, at the very least, I, I I wanted more goals as a neutral. Um, but that's not well, that, that's all. That's what we all want isn't to it? expect. <laughs> Everyone wants a like a three-two rather than a one-nil. Really, when you get down to it, like when you're watching some of the players that are playing in that game, who are you know amongst the best in the league, you you want to see you know even if it's an Arsenal win, Haaland to score two brilliant goals and and you know Arsenal to reply with three exceptional ones of their own. And you know, ideally, yes, that's always more exciting than a than a one-nil. Uh, well, in, in most cases, anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I do think this game had uh, quite a bit of merit. And I, I think it's interesting what you said there, sort of the mentality for Arsenal, but also just the shift in this context. Like, it's always been a bit of a given that City gets six points against Arsenal. And if you'll recall, at the end of last season, that was sort of a thing that everyone was, even the sort of most staunch Arsenal fans, were sort of pricing into their sort of distance ahead of City. It was like, mm-hmm. well, there's a six-point swing coming up, which always goes City. Um, and I'm sure City will sort of uh, nullify this loss at the Emirates when Arsenal go up to the Etihad in, in, in a couple of months' time. Well, hey, but maybe the not. the fact that they haven't... Well, maybe not. You never know. But at least they, at least at this point, from Arsenal's perspective, they'll say that they've nullified the win at the Etihad. So it's not a full sort of 12-point swing this year. It's, you know, they've won the first game. And worst case scenario, they leave, you know, not having lost any money, as it were. They've, they've sort of gone even with the house. Um I do want to talk, uh, we talked a little bit about Arsenal there. Uh, I want to talk about Kovacic in just a second, but I also want to ask you this question. For City, this is three losses on the bounce, including their Carabao Cup loss to Newcastle. They've lost all three games sans Rodri, who is now, of course, back. And it's the first time they've lost consecutive league games since 2018, which is an absurd stat that they even had it. Another absurd stat is, you know, the team now that has the longest streak since losing two consecutive league games? Brighton. (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, no, crazy, right? What is anyway, the, what is well, the length of that streak? Uh, since uh, I think February 2022, um, which is still very, fair very play. impressive for Brighton. Actually, fair um, play. Then I was thinking you were going to say it was all since, that like, said, <laughs> August. Is this the, the end of the season or something? No, no, no. It's, it's it's quite quite a long tail on that one. All that said, um, you know, City now two consecutive league uh, league defeats uh, and obviously that Carabao Cup one in between do you think that this might be one of those seasons where do you remember how there was about five years where them and Liverpool were neck and neck every single year and it was always Man City would be on or Liverpool would be on 88 points but oh Man City were on 89 and then Liverpool would be on 91 points and oh Man City were on 92 and every time Man City just had the edge and just had it in the tank to get ahead of Liverpool except for the one season when Liverpool did win. And Man City actually had quite a bad year. It's not that Liverpool won it because Man City were bad. Liverpool won it on, I think, like 89 points or something like that. So they had a a brilliant amount of points. But I think Man City had something like 76 or 74. And they just really had an off year because I think they were so far behind and they dropped off the points that they almost not gave up, but they, they weren't as dogged in pursuit as they are maybe when they're three points behind or six points behind. Was this the during lockdown one where Liverpool had that incredible massive run of games where they were unbeaten till March? 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the psychology of that is quite interesting because I feel like the league was pretty wrapped up by almost by January. Um, so I can imagine that you probably wouldn't put as much effort into that. Maybe you try and focus on other competitions. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, what was your question? Sorry, what was your, your the full question? I didn't even really get around to it, to be honest. I tailed off uh, with a bit of narrative. But I suppose my question was, because you know neither Arsenal nor Tottenham, who are above them, are, are that far ahead of Man City. But do you think that, let's say Man City lose one more game, and let's say, for argument's sake, it's the one next week against Brighton, do they start to maybe have another one of those 2020 seasons and maybe start to go, you know what, we're all treble winners. I'm not that arsed. Well, it's interesting because I think that while, you know, they will not be without Kevin De Bruyne and Rodri and Zach Steffen, their, their most important goalkeeper, um, for <laughs> the whole of the season or indeed for the majority of the season, I think what's interesting is to, to look at the bench and who um, Pep Guardiola chose not to bring on and who Pep Guardiola clearly doesn't really seem to trust. Um, you know, for example, Calvin Phillips, um, who would seem to be um, the player that Pep Guardiola has in his mind as someone who who can replace someone like Rodri when Rodri can't play, didn't didn't even come on, didn't play a minute. Um, someone like Jack well, Grealish. I, I think he, who, he was in mind, and he, he argued himself out of that with the previous two games. Well, perhaps, but I think um, you know it's once once trust is lost, it's it's always harder to win it back um, than it you know than it is to to lose it. Um, I think Jack Grealish as well as an unused sub. Um, is uh, it just feels to me like there are players that could be key players, could be really good players as depth that Pep Guardiola is no longer reaching to um, to try and and change games. And I know that one game doesn't determine that, so it could well be that that Jack Grealish starts the next few or, or comes on for the next few. Um, Calvin Phillips maybe gets back into the good books, but but I wonder if this could be the start of, for example, um, him starting to to lose a bit of trust for the the players on the extremities of the squad and really only stick to a, a core group and when you're trying to challenge across all competitions that's when things get really tricky um and you can try uh, with a team like Liverpool to uh, only play your most important players in almost every game but uh, that also does lead to some drop off um which we saw in the last few years really um from Liverpool so it could well be you're right that that maybe maybe the wheels are starting to come off at, at Man City. I think it's definitely too too early to like have any sort of assuredness on that. But who's to say? Maybe. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I don't really fundamentally believe that two losses is a cause for concern. Uh, that, that is sort of just for any other club, just a normal bad couple of weeks. It's only because it's in the context of City, who we expect to win every game, have done it. Have done it. Um, but yeah, it was just something about you know like Carl Walker getting into a scrap with the set piece coach because he tried to shake his hand, and some of the comments made afterwards by the players. It was like a real sort of oh, City don't know what losing feels like very often and they really don't like it when it happens and and to be honest as much as I say that often in the past when we have seen them lose they then respond by absolutely pounding someone 8-0 so that might be what happened we might be here in a couple of weeks time talking about how they've absolutely decimated Brighton 8-0 after the international break and go actually I think they'll be all right um but (laughs) it was just it was just something interesting that I that I was wondering um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I was kind of talking to um, when I'm watching the game. I was talking to Arsenal fans about that. I was, I was like, I really didn't think they were going to get anything from this game. Not just because um, of of anything other than the fact that this Man City lost last week, and so are therefore going to be out on the the warpath. We've joked about it before. It's very much a real thing that they tend to bounce back and bounce back hard. Um, so that also feels like a a, a change in trend. Yeah, although the common thread is that Rodri's been out, and Rodri will be back next week, So, or not next week, next game week, I should say, because we've got another bloody international break. Um, but, uh, True. yeah, he'll, he'll they, be back. They just didn't really have any sort of creative punch in the midfield without De Bruyne, so Haaland was rendered pretty ineffective as well. And also, of course, credit to Arsenal's defence. Last bit I want to talk about, and uh, funny the way we formatted this, that this is the last bit we're talking about, because this was... Such a big incident that it almost overshadowed the win. Um, Mateo Kovacic staying on the pitch. <laughs> what did you think of yeah. this with his two tackles that were 
arguably both red cards in their own right. And I, I know that Howard Webb uh, is doing his sort of PG mole TV show tonight. And he's already said, I've seen something that he said he was very lucky to stay on the pitch. Uh, is it Dermot Gallagher, the other guy who, who does a sort of rest view and was like, he was really lucky to stay on the pitch. And everyone's sort of been like, how has he not been sent off there? Um, I've sort of loaded the deck there, but um, I mean, do, do you have a, a really differing opinion? Do you think perfectly good tackles? Um, I mean, honestly, n- not really. Um, I, yeah, I mean, other, I think a lot of ex-referees have come out and said that um, both were reds. He should have been set off so strongly. Um, I think some, Mark Halsey also wrote something um, in the mirror, things like that. Yeah, I, I feel like it was a pretty clear sending off combined even if you don't agree that um that either of those two on their own should have been reds i think um that's a couple of orange cards in my book yeah i I think that's really fair even if neither was a red they're both definitely as soon as you do one the next tackle especially if it's the ground you have to go so the fact that he stayed on uh was was really quite strange and look i don't want to you know necessarily don my tinfoil hat here but obviously one of the big pieces people have been talking about a lot over the last like 48 hours has been the fact that you know Michael Oliver um who I would say is one of the better refs in the Premier League which is not to say much but you know I would say it's still there has obviously been um you know going over to the UAE to referee games there and that may just be a complete coincidence and that might just be something that is incidental and it might be that you know there might not be any sort of agreement but hey all I'll say is this we're talking about a manager in Pep Guardiola whose old club is currently being investigated for paying off referees while he was manager. And now we have Premier League referees going to manage games in the UAE who own Manchester City and decisions don't seem to be going against them. I'm not saying there's any link between any of that. Form your own conclusions. At best, it's incompetence. At worst, it's something a lot more sinister. Wow, okay. Yeah, no, hey, fair, fair play, fair play. Um, well, I think we can at least sleep easy knowing that PG Mole will be taking the hardest possible line on this. And, and I have no doubt that we'll soon be finding out that Michael Oliver will be getting a stern telling off and told that he can't manage uh, referee any more games against Arsenal this season. Um, so that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I know for sure. Because <laughs> I think he'll be given, you know, one week off, and then uh, then he'll be straight back. Because you know, the other, the other, um, one of the other Naughty three referees Michael. who was managing... take a week of paid vacation. Naughty Michael. Well, exactly. The the other one, the other uh, one of the other like three referees who went um, went to UAE to to uh, referee a game was Darren England, who was obviously on VAR for Liverpool's uh, disallowed goal against Spurs. So look. There is an absolute possibility this is all one big, huge coincidence, and that is probably the more simple explanation than a huge referee, you know, corruption circle. Uh, but hey, to, to be clear, Darren England also, I, I think, that, I think that was his only punishment was that he had to maybe take a week off and couldn't, um, couldn't officiate any games um, for Liverpool for the rest of the year. I think that was his, that was his only punishment. Which is so strange that as a punishment, because it's like, if you're saying he's not good enough to referee Liverpool, why it's is he not, allowed to referee everyone else? Is it? It's a, but, but it's like, it's one dumb, of, if you're saying he can't, if you're saying he can't referee Liverpool for the rest of the season, one of two things must be true because of that. Either he has a bias against Liverpool, in which case you should sack him, or he's not good enough to referee games, so you should sack him. <laughs> I don't understand why they're like we've we've ascertained that for one reason or the other, either you're not good enough or you're biased that you can't referee Liverpool, but everyone else is fine. Because then, what does that mean? Like, let's say it's the former that he's biased against Liverpool, which I'm not saying is the case, but this is one of the two potential sort of reasonings. Then, what about when he referees Everton or Manchester City or Chelsea or, or any of Liverpool's rivals, really? And, and on the other hand, if he's not incompetent, why? Like, if he's not competent, why? <laughs> why is he still here? No, I just think you you must not be seeing the big picture, Cam. You must not have the 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 brain or the intellect of of uh, the refereeing association. I don't have the brain or intellect of the refereeing association, and I'll take that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> let's move into a bit of useless trivia before we go into our next group of games. Uh, I've got an interesting one for you, actually, uh, also to do with referees. Uh, it's something that I saw last week, um, which was. Um, it sort of continued to be true this week, but it was something that I saw last week uh, in response to, um, obviously, 
Diogo Yota getting two yellow cards. It's now 302 Premier League games since a player got a second yellow against Liverpool. All other clubs in the same time frame have between 5 and 15, which is itself an enormous variance, but I guess different teams have, you know, different likelihood to make yellow card challenges. But even stranger than that, the last player to get a second yellow card against Liverpool was none other than Sadio Mane for Southampton in 2015, October. Wow, there you go. Honestly, and you try and tell me that narrative doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. I, don't. I, I say the script writers. <laughs> what do you got for me? <laughs> they create narrative. We're, we're in agreement, I think. <laughs> I, think we're on the, I think we're on the same page here. Um, I have quite a fun story for you, which uh, comes from 2010 um, and Crystal Palace's cup run. Um, in January of 2010... Um, I, Crystal Palace were set to play um, in a rematch um, in the FA Cup's fourth round, um, Wolves. And the night before the game, um, the the manager's wife, um, the manager at the, at the time being Neil Warnock, um, his wife, Sharon, had a dream. And in that dream, she saw that a right back would score the winning goal. And I, I swear this is true. That morning, Neil Warnock walks into the dressing room, points at Danny Butterfield, the second choice right back, and goes, you're starting up front, lad. And (laughs) he'd never played up front before. He'd scored one goal in the last six years as a professional footballer. He started up front, scored a perfect hat-trick in six minutes. (laughs) (laughs) They won 3-1. They won 3-1, and that is the only game he ever played up front. Good lord! Well, look if, if you, you got to, if you got a muse, you've got a muse, and Neil Warnock clearly absolutely backs his misses. Oh, honestly, I, when I was doing research for for this, I just couldn't quite believe it, and I, and I was looking it up, and um, it first um, <laughs> apparently in terms of how it came out, um, people at first thought that it was because of Palace's financial problems um, that saw them kind of going into administration that made them have to convert one of their um, un, like lesser used defenders into a makeshift striker. <laughs> Apparently it came out afterwards that Neil Warnock t- revealed that it was literally just because his wife had a dream about it. I mean, you know what? That's as, uh, that's as good a reason to make a managerial decision as any. Uh, if you think you have a wife that is an oracle, then uh, absolutely back it. Um, well, hey, yeah, I mean, what a listen, brilliant one. If, if someone hands... <laughs> If someone hands me winning winning lottery tickets and says that they dreamed them and they turn out to, to be correct, I'm going to listen to those dreams. Mm, yeah, 100%. Um, I wonder what else Sharon's told him that he sort of kept to himself. And it's, <laughs> people are like, how did you Honestly, become a football manager, Neil? And it's like... <laughs> there must be a lot because otherwise, why would you back your wife in, in that, yeah. to that regard, in that situation? Um, yeah, she must no. have gotten... A couple of real corkers right before that for him to to decide to change his entire game plan for for his FA Cup game. I imagine so. Uh, Let's move back into the Premier League. It's taken us uh, up till the second half of the episode, but we're finally talking about the team that at present sits atop the Premier League. Uh, Luton losing 1-0 to Spurs. Uh, Luton not quite although they are outside of the relegation zone um, they are subsisting on their vibes I mean that was the case last week but even this loss hasn't sent them too far down uh, and hey subsistence. well look I mean you know it's only a 1-0 loss for them and that, that really could make all the difference come the end of the season um, impactful game this for a couple of reasons obviously Spurs marching on to another win uh, but they did lose Basuma uh, to a second yellow um, second yellow seemed to be a big uh, big theme of this episode um, is this going to cause their own sort of version of City losing Rodri Spurs losing Basuma um, I mean what I would say is that the club are top of the league and that's brilliant for them but the first eight games they've played so far have seen them play all three promoted teams plus Bournemouth. So there's a case to be made that Spurs have had a very, very easy run to get there. The counter-argument to that would be, of course, they've also played Liverpool, Arsenal and Manchester United and have picked up seven points from nine. So are they good or not? It's, um... They're obviously pretty good. They're obviously pretty good. Um, they will miss Yves Bissouma, I'm sure. Um, I think he's um, the he's the the only defensive midfielder that has started every single game 
in the start of their season so far. Um, so it will be a bit of a blow. Interesting as well, um, I think in their last four games, there have been four red cards in Tottenham Hotspur matches. Um, of course, two of those coming um, for Liverpool um, last week. But still, the stat remains. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I think Tottenham are obviously a pretty impressive side. They're still yet to be fully, 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 fully tested. Um, they did go toe-for-toe with Arsenal uh, and draw two all. And they did beat Liverpool. Um, so, yes, they have played a couple of easier games. But also, they haven't played no one. Um, that's uh, that's in the top half of the table. Um, they've actually played a couple of them. I don't know. I, I think um, they are still somewhat untested. I don't think that they will stay at the top of the table. I don't think that's a hot take. But they're definitely better than I personally gave them credit for at the start of the season. I thought they would struggle in a way that they haven't. And a lot of the time, all you need to do is get off to a good start and then suddenly everyone's buying into what the new manager's saying. Everyone's trying to get games. Um, you know, the subs are working and suddenly like everyone everyone is um, competing for spots and coming on and doing well. And it, it all adds up. So even if part of it is that they've had a slightly early run at the start, that doesn't mean that that's not going to lead to um, a strong run throughout the competition. Yeah, and I think it's exactly that. I think especially having a new manager and especially starting life after Harry Kane, to have that strong start has been so important and all of the players have clearly bought into what, what Ange Postacoglu represents and, and what he's about uh, and so too have all the fans. They already seem to absolutely love him and that will serve you really, really well if things do start to go a bit poorly, if you do have you know a couple of draws where you shouldn't or you get a couple of losses where, where maybe you shouldn't. If you have that backing of the fans, that can help that you know, that can prevent that from turning into a downward spiral and just be a, a small blip on the radar. So I agree. I think having the good start, whatever, you know, however you look at it, is really, really key. And, and you know, you'd rather have that that run at the beginning than, than sort of midway through, especially because in the Premier, in this business, you don't always get to, if you don't have it straight away, you don't, don't always get to that run. I think there is like a case to be made sure. that, you know, in some of these games, they have potentially been a bit lucky, but it's another one of like, well, do you call that, you know, you're just lucky and you didn't deserve it? Or do you ride your luck and, you know, you make your own luck and all those sort of adages? Um, in as much as like, yes, okay, they they got lucky probably against Liverpool with some of those decisions and lucky that Jorginho decided to, to you know, give them a ball and, you know, scoring against Sheffield United late. Or is that just dogged persistence against Sheffield United and relentless pressing against Arsenal and, you know, again, relentless persistence against Liverpool who despite being down to nine men, are not necessarily pushovers. So I think you could slice it either way, depending on whether you're pro-Spurs or anti-Spurs or you know neutral Spurs. Um, but what is definitely true, and regardlessly true of any of that, is that the fans and the players are all on board with this new project, and that is exactly the kind of thing you need to make a project work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they're going to have a good season. Um they could well finish in the top four. I would still probably be a little surprised if they did, but um, it's a new look Spurs, and the the look is good. It looks good. Do 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 you reckon you'd be surprised if they finished top four? I mean, because just just like taking the temperature and just looking at the table as it is currently, if Tottenham don't finish in the top four, you're assuming that. I mean, let let's assume to fit out the top four, and you're not going completely wild west with me here. But assuming that Arsenal, Man City, and Liverpool fill in those spots, mm. and assuming that Man United and Chelsea probably don't because they don't look so. Although we'll talk about Chelsea a little bit later. Who, who are you saying, Villa, who I said at the start of the season, who are currently fifth? Well, I mean, I think Villa are, are a great example of a club that could um, knock Tottenham out of the top four. I think um, even Brighton are on the same amount of points, sixteen could knock Tottenham out of the top four. And I think part of part of that, um, me saying that, is almost because when I think about Tottenham playing either of those sides, I still imagine that Aston Villa could come away with three points and Brighton could come away with three points. And that's it's not, obviously, Premier League standings not decided just on head-to-head, but they are six points, um, as discussed. I feel like I have more confidence in Aston Villa's ability to be consistent than I do with Spurs' ability to be consistent after eight games, which is not necessarily fully fair because Spurs have obviously had a better first eight games because they're at the top. But um, yeah, I, I think they're still just too untested and I think that it's a good run of form, but it won't last. 
Which is funny you should say that, because I think, ironically, you saying that is, is the kind of thing that a lot of Spurs fans would want to hear. Um, I think I've, I've seen loads of Spurs fans talking sure. about sort of the the whole sort of underdog thing and how, like, as long as people keep not rating them and sort of don't realise what, you know, in, in the words of Spurs fans, what they've become and keep sort of going, oh, well, it's just Spurs, the more time they have to sort of pick up points. And it's funny, and this is a real cardinal sin for fans of both teams to compare the two, but it's funny how when you look last season at Arsenal... The whole time, everyone was going, eh, Arsenal, they'll fall down eventually. Oh, Arsenal, you're chasing the league, are you? Okay, okay. We all know it'll come to an end. And that whole time, they were picking up points, picking up points, picking up points. And it was only sort of when that general sentiment started to turn a little bit and you had people going, actually, you know what? They might go and win the league, is when the wheels came off. That's true. Um, It's a good point. I think, well, even if that's true... There is at least five, four months between, um, you know, where we are now and the point where people started to think that the Arsenal could just do it. Yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying is that Tottenham, certainly the way that Tottenham fans are acting is that they're like, hey, you keep saying that we're not going to win the league and you keep underestimating us and you keep saying that, you know, Ange isn't a top manager and Son's not a good player and we can't do anything without Kane because while you do that, we'll keep getting these sort of scrappy wins and everyone will say that they're not good quality wins and all that time it'll just be three points every week, three points, three points, one point here and everyone will keep sort of sneering down their nose at us but that doesn't matter to us because then, you know, by then it'll be too late. And that is, it, it is, and I think there's, there is maybe an aspect to that. You know, people talk about siege mentality all the time. And, and on the other hand, people talk about pressure all the time. If people are constantly doubting you and thinking, oh, they can't do it, they can't do it, it probably gives you as a, as a player a little bit of an extra boost to go, well, actually, I'm going to prove I can. And on the other hand, for some players, and I think it is partly what happened to Arsenal last season, when the expectation genuinely is there and you've got the eyes of the country and the media and all the fans and all the opposition fans going, well, it's theirs to lose now, all of a sudden, sort of proving yourself, it it turns from proving yourself into a massive pressure and almost sort of like, it's no longer yours to win, it's yours to lose. Sure. Hey, I I fully hear you and what you're saying. I just think that I'm not coming in with these these like dramatic takes of Son is terrible <laughs> and Postacoglu is a, is a terrible manager. I think he's a good player and I think he's a good manager. Um, however, uh, I've not seen enough confident wins to really make me feel confident in them. Um, you know, yes, I kind of said that they've they've done well, but you also said that they've had a couple of pretty fortunate wins. Um, you know. To get the win over Liverpool was, was of course, um, not just down to the players on the pitch, but also to the referees off the pitch. And, you know, when you're getting um, a red card in the first half and going down to 10 men and, and managing to pick up three points, it's really lucky that you're playing one of the one of the slightly worst sides in the league. Um, so, you know, they, they lost to Fulham already in the Carabao Cup as well. I think they can swing. Um, it, it really depends. And personally, I'm just not I'm not sold on the vision of them being last year's Arsenal this year. Uh, I just think that's that's a way off. That would be that'd be very rich for my blood. Um, but yeah, hey, although I've as been you wrong mentioned, before, the that's certainly team. true, Cam. The difference between them and last season's are, I mean, I don't want to sort of continue on this point because I don't, I, I am also with you that I don't think Tottenham are going to be last season's Arsenal. But unlike last season's Arsenal, the one advantage they have there is, you mentioned they've been knocked out of the Carabao Cup. They also have no Europe. So, you know, things all started to go a bit pear-shaped for Arsenal when they lost William Saliba in Europe and Takahiro Tomiyasu to a, a slightly lesser extent. Um, whereas Tottenham, as long as they manage what is now only two tournaments they have to play in uh, and sort of Heung-Min Son or James Madison don't get injured uh, or injured for long at least, um, that big sort of concern, which played a big part in ending things for Arsenal, won't be as likely as, 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 it, as it will be for them. That's true. And, and they do have um, a good amount of depth in a couple of positions. I just think that I personally don't think that they're good enough to, to finish top two. Um, well, and again, not a, not a massive take, but not, I, I not would not be surprised if they finished. I, I would not be surprised if they finished outside the top four still. Um, and hey. Yeah, hey, let the eggs come. 
Let the eggs come. Uh, let's talk next about uh, Chelsea Burnley. Chelsea finding their groove? Question mark or just beating Burnley? Question mark. Sorry, Burnley. What do you think about this game? <laughs> a little bit of a shake up from Chelsea uh, and changing to a more sort of typical four three three and away from this sort of uh, Enzo Fernandez attacking midfield extraordinaire. Uh, and also Cole Palmer and Armando Broja coming into the starting eleven. Chelsea turning a corner here, shaking off some of the cobwebs, or is it just against the Burnley side that have been, in fairness to the Burnley, pummeled by quite a lot of the teams in the league this season? <laughs> um, I think they've shaken some cobwebs. I think um, when you concede a goal early, it, it's often a good um, litmus test for what you're going to do when the chips are down. And they responded pretty well. They They scored four of their own. Um, so that for me feels like a nice uh, reactive bounce to almost the season as a whole. They've they've struggled at times, um, and they came back and, and they maybe needed a little bit of luck when an own goal happens. There's always a tiny amount of that, um, but I thought they were pretty good for this win. Um, I think that they put Burnley to the sword pretty well. Um, they stifled Burnley a lot. Burnley had to try and make a load of subs to to respond. They ultimately didn't work. Chelsea continued to score goals. Uh, I thought pretty good game. Yeah, I think so. And it's sort of it's worth my mentioning just because we didn't discuss this uh, in detail last week. This isn't, of course, the first league game they've made. A lot of these tactical switches they did do it last week as well, where they also won against Fulham. Um, was that on Monday or something? Is that why we didn't discuss it? Was that a weird time, or maybe it just wasn't very high on the docket? Um, I think we were busy uh, talking I think about it was World on, Cup it was conspiracies. On... <laughs> I think it was on. Um, I think it was on. Was that Monday? Yeah. Maybe, maybe we didn't talk about it at length. But at any rate, yeah, they, they've sort of they've gone to a new system now, and it's two wins and two. Yes, all right, it's against Fulham and Burnley, but again, I think that could be quite key for Monday. confidence. And if they're moving away from this sort of real issue of playing their midfield in a completely incomprehensible way, and uh, you know, you've got the likes of Cole Palmer and Amanda Broja who've come in and, and look like they've got some confidence. I, I don't massively rate either of those players personally but then at the same time maybe that gives them all the more reason to sort of prove themselves if they're not you know oh it's not really fair to say that Cole Palmer isn't rated in some circles because he does you know he did go for a lot of money and he was playing City I just I don't I mean this was his first Premier League goal and he's had about five Premier League starts before and maybe that means he is really good but I just haven't seen enough of him but personally don't really rate him um, but what, yeah, every you know, every young that... player has to play like Bellingham the first 10 games that they get to start for their big club that's not fair <laughs> I also... no, one, no one can play quite like Jude <laughs> Bellingham that's, that's certainly true I, 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 I also, I, I, I also I somewhat know. agree with you to be fair I somewhat agree um, Cole Palmer definitely hit the how much button um, in my reaction catalogue um, mm. but you know here he is starting a game scoring a goal um, and I think he got an assist as well. So, not He's bad. Right not bad. Yeah, look, it's two starts, two goal contributions. So that's, uh, you know, you start as you mean to go on, he'll have 38 goal contributions over the course of the season if you extrapolate it. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> Come home. <laughs> um, well, he also, he also has had a, had a yellow card in that time, so... He'll have 19 yellow cards, which might impact him. That's true. That's true. But no, I think um, it was a positive game for for Chelsea, getting to bring on players like Ian Matson for the last few minutes. Um, Michaela Mudrick got a run out as well. Raheem Sterling got on the score sheet. He's obviously a pretty important player for for them. Conor Gallagher got an assist. That's pretty nice for, um, as we've talked about, a a midfield that ostensibly does not create or score a lot of goals. Um, I, I think, yeah, all in all, it was a good game for a, for a team that has struggled against the, not the best opposition. That's broadly what you said at the start. I, I think I think it could well be um, a nice little turnaround for them. Unfortunately, they do have a couple of tough fixtures coming up. Well, it's it's interesting that they'll have uh, you know the first game they've got after the international break is Arsenal. Um, 
And I think that could be really interesting to see how they play in that game. Even if they don't necessarily win, I think if they put in a good performance there, it'll sort of make everyone go, okay, actually, maybe they are waking up a bit. And it's kind of interesting, just, it's almost sort of a reverse version of, remember that season when Chelsea won the league because they got smashed by Arsenal 3-0 and they switched to that 3-5-2 and then ended up winning the league? It'll almost be sort of like that, that in reverse. If they have changed the formation and now Arsenal is sort of like the test after they've changed the formation, they managed to get a result there, that might turn things around. Alternatively, there's every possibility that Arsenal goes to the bridge and sort of send Chelsea back down to earth. Um, but we'll see what happens. I mean, as we are always so fond of saying, derbies happen in a vacuum. So, uh, you know, it may be the case that Chelsea, uh, you know, shrug off their poor form uh, over the course of the season. At least they've got good form in the last two. Uh, and Arsenal uh, shrug off their good form uh, and the, the result goes away. None of us are expecting. That's uh, That's certainly true. Yeah, you've uh, you set my mind wandering there, where, where you mentioned the um, derbies happening in a vacuum. I wonder if you have an, an idea in your mind of the the derby that seems to happen the most in a vacuum, and and if so, whether or not we could in fact christen it the Hoover Derby. Uh, I'll tell you what I think it is as of today, because I saw someone tweeting about it, which is bizarre. I think someone pointed out that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, as United manager, had beaten City like six times. And I was like, what? He was not a good manager. And that was at a time when City were winning the league every year. How did he manage that? That is surprising. Uh, my My two initial suggestions were Man U, Man City, or maybe Liverpool, Everton, because I feel like... There are definitely times where Everton managed to to spring out a surprise win or a surprise draw, especially um, the last few years. It's been surprising when when they've not been doing oh so well. Um, yeah, maybe Man U, Man City. Well, either way, I, I like the idea of trying to work out which one is the one that that goes most against the grain, and then christening it um, the Hoover Derby. Well, that, we- that that really that feels good to me. We might have an answer sooner than you think because uh, Everton go to Anfield uh, after the international break, first game back. So if they get a result there, <laughs> then we can call that one the Hoover Derby. If they get absolutely okay, pounced deal. on, um, then no. <laughs> deal. Deal. Done. It's done. Speaking of Everton, a 3-0 win for them uh, this weekend. Uh, 3-0 win over Bournemouth. Semi-comfortably out of the relegation zone, question mark, with three points. Uh, And at least have two wins under their belt, which the strange thing about that is, that's even more than Brentford. I didn't know Brentford were having such a bad season, and we'll talk about that in a little bit if we have time. Um, No, but Everton, three goals here. Another strange stat I saw this week is that Everton have somehow managed to accumulate more XG this season than Manchester City. Um, which tells you how useful that is in isolation. It's similar to that one about Chelsea and Man City having more XG. No, exactly, right? It's crazy, that. That's hilarious. That's so funny. Um, Well, I mean, Everton did, in fact, beat Brentford, I'm pretty sure, in September um, to to make it one of their um, couple of wins. But, yeah, Everton... Well, look, they're out of the relegation zone. They're three points uh, from safety. Um, they've they've had a couple of good performances. This is obviously a a pretty good result to, um, to beat Bournemouth three nil. Also, I would say, you know, to beat Brentford three one away from home was fantastic. And it's just weird they're just yo-yoing, aren't they? Because then they lost two one to Luton um, in between those two results. Um, so they're just pretty hard to to work out at the moment. Um, losing one nil to Wolves, losing four nil to Villa. Losing one 0 to Fulham, these all pretty bad results. But then um, they do seem to be having a little bit of an uptick, a little bit getting a little bit better. Um, I personally am a, I'm a big believer um, in their in their manager, their current manager. Um, so we shall see. I think they're quite fortunate, as are a few other teams, that in this season they're. I think we're going to have some record, not necessarily the record, but I think we're going to have like. Points to- totals that we haven't seen in quite a while across the Premier League. I think 
based on this first eight games, Sheffield United are not going to be picking up a lot of points. I don't think Burnley are going to be picking up a lot of points. I don't think Luton necessarily. I've, I've sort of omitted Bournemouth there because Bournemouth have been in the mix a little bit longer and might sort of turn it around. But I think those three newly promoted teams, at least on the strength of what we've seen so far, might pick up <laughs> like sub-15, 20, 25 points, which will make it quite easy uh, for those who would normally go down with something like 32 points to stay up. Yeah, true. Well, hey, I mean, I think um, I think I mentioned it um, a couple of weeks ago, but, um, you know, still remains the bottom seven teams all would finish below 38 points. So, you know, we'll keep a monitor on that and see how how much it um, whether or not that, that starts to change. But at the moment, it really does seem like there's a there's a big undercarriage of um, struggling teams in the Premier League. Yeah, there, there, there really are. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out. Does that Sheffield United? I think are on course for a for a worse season than Derby County. Pretty sure. Uh, well, Derby County got games. wasn't yeah, it eleven yeah, points? It's eleven yeah, points. Yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. It? They, de- they definitely are. I think they're on course for five, like four point seven five points. Sheffield United. It's it's less than five. <laughs> that's that's good maths. Um, yeah, yeah. That I mean, one win and one draw for the rest of the season. That would be truly dire. Um, <laughs> that would be shocking. I don't think that that will happen. Uh, so you know, um, let's finish off by talking about uh, a an absolute uh, searing comeback from perhaps the most unlikely of uh, protagonists. Although, if you've been watching a lot of Scottish national team football recently, perhaps not as unlikely as you'd think. Uh, Scott McTominay mm-hmm. launching a comeback to save a local bald man uh, as he continues his reinvention as the second coming of Rude Van Nistelrooy. Two really good goals as well. One was uh, a really nice finish, sort of inside the box, but getting through a crowded area. And one was genuinely as good as a good a header as you'll see any other striker in the... Oh, I say any other striker, any striker in the league perform. Honestly, it, the, the, such a bizarre 10 minutes. Harry Maguire got the assist for the second one as well. Um, yeah, really... but just the way he runs onto it and he sort of like flicks I, hey, it I... a little bit and he has enough. I hear you. It, it very much felt like bizarro world. Um, one of those one of those moments where football just doesn't really make sense. Um, but hey, you're right though. He he does do it for Scotland sometimes in the same way that um, John McGinn um, does. But then I guess he does it for for Villa a little bit more than. Um, McTominay does for um... well, well I think Scott, Scott McTominay I, I mean he he does he's not afraid of scoring a goal for Scotland generally but in the recent um, in the current Euros qualifier he's not just doing it for he's a top scorer it's a joint top scorer with like Kylian Mbappe and, and others it is funny isn't it when you, you see um, well because obviously our perception of him as a man used midfielder versus Scotland's perception of him as a national midfielder will be completely different. And there are times, look, when a player has more in the locker than they are able to show often uh, on a on a club basis. Um, and it's fun to see. Mm, the execution stayed for uh, old Eric Ten Hag for another week. Um, another sort of very, it looked like United were going to lose again 1-0 and we sort of got out of jail. Maybe this is one of those that they'll sort of look back on and rue a little bit because it's three points now for less points later. Um, but hey, they've managed to get two against Brentford. And I just want to talk about them briefly because um, they really are in trouble. Uh, they, you know, sign Neil Morpay, pay for your sins. But um, yeah, not going so well this season, which has happened, at least to my <laughs> mind, a little bit quietly. It has been quiet. I think everyone's. I think everyone's not really talking about them because... The, the broad assumption is that as soon as Ivan Tony comes back, they're going to be fine. So it's kind of like, it's like, okay, cool. Good job, Brentford. Maybe try winning a game. Maybe try and get a few more points until your golden boy comes back. And then and then you can actually start competing again. Um, that might not be fair, but that's kind of what I thought when I looked at them and saw that they were quite far down the table. It just felt like they probably wouldn't stay there because they'd either get Tony back and start banging goals or they'd sell him and reinvest that money. And they tend to be pretty good at reinvesting their money. But that's probably why I think I personally have overlooked them. As you say, they have played more games than points um, one. So that's pretty bad. I think the thing for me is just like the 
it's, They've it's won to, only it's one game. What's really going wrong at Brentford? Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. It's hard to work out what's fully going wrong. It does just seem like they're a little bit all over the place. They don't have a very strong game plan. There's not a really strong spine of of core players. Um, no one stepping up. Bit weak in defence. They they I think they concede. I don't think they've had a game that they haven't conceded in since the middle of August. Um, and they're not really scoring many goals either, so it's just all quite bad. Yeah, it's all quite bad, and obviously, as you say, they're they're missing Ivan Tony. But then they knew they were going to miss Ivan Tony going into the season, and the keeper situation is very strained. They've sort of obviously loaned out David Raya to, to Arsenal, who's having a bit of an up and down time himself. So I'm not sure he would necessarily be the answer to all the problems. But they started that guy Mark Flecken for the first seven games, and then dropped him in this game. There doesn't seem to be sort of any real, you know. And again, this, I guess, goes back to the Ivan Tony thing, but any sort of real idea where the goals are coming from, it was Mbumo for a bit. It's now, weirdly, Matthias Jensen, who's like a central midfielder. So I don't think anything like anything they do that is good just doesn't look sustainable at all. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think um, I think they are a squad bereft of ideas um, and creativity and maybe grit, if, if, that is, if that is fair to say. Um, I'm trying to think of of how much they've they've really mixed things up um, that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, they've obviously had to to swap their goalkeepers. Um, they've made they've made quite a few changes in in defence over the course of the season. I think they've mixed up their midfield quite a lot, and then mm-hmm. then up front they've had to rely on um, Kilos Potter and Neil Morpé, and neither of them have scored a goal or gone assist. No, no. As, I mean, as I said, when they signed Neil Morpé at the time, we all went, that's not really going to do you any favours. And he hasn't. Um, I, like, I like the idea that um, I like the idea that Everton are just like laughing their way to the bank. They're like, we managed to get rid of him. Um, I also... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also um, got thinking of other players that tend to do well for their, um, their nation and not their club. And the most obvious one that I could think of was Gareth Bale, but that's maybe not fully fair because he probably should have been playing for for Real Madrid were it not for political things. Indeed. Indeed, that is true. Um, But that is probably a good place to end it for this week, Rupert. Great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much and thank you to everyone for listening. We will catch you next time. That's it for now. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.